encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're starting today an Advent series called Emmanuel Unwrapped. Uh, The idea is to take this word, Emmanuel, this title for Jesus that's used throughout the scriptures, particularly pointing to the birth of Jesus, and to kind of take it apart in pieces. So you probably know Emmanuel literally means God with us. You probably know that because the scriptures interpret it it, itself. uh, The Bible says Emmanuel meaning God with us. Quite literally, the the word Emmanuel is a three-part word that is actually flipped around in, in Hebrew. It's actually with us God, Emmanuel is with us God. So God with us is what we're going to look at over the course of the next four weeks. So today we're going to look at the idea of God himself. What is it that the earliest Christians expected when they expected God? When they heard that God was coming to earth, what did Mary expect? What did Joseph expect? What did Elizabeth and Zechariah expect? What was their perception of who that God was and what that meant? And then over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the idea of with from two different perspectives, both the idea of being with the world around us, what it means for us to be incarnational, and what it means that God came to be with us, that, uh, that connection of uh, the Jesus literally moving into our neighborhood, being with us. And then finally, us, what, what it means that God's intent was us as his people. And so that's where we're going to journey over the next four weeks as we work towards Christmas. Uh, And the goal is for us to, with new eyes, be able to celebrate Christmas in the way that Christians should, the the way that we recognize God coming to be with us. And so I want to start with a quote that if if you've been around York Alliance for a while, you've probably heard me quote the very first line from a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by a guy named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer wrote a book on the, the characteristics of God, and he began with a very famous sentence. Let me show you the sentence. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now that began a a couple paragraphs where Tozer unpacked why he believes that to be true. And I often quote that first line, but I rarely quote what comes after it. This is a more extended quote, but but I want you to try to follow his line of reasoning because I think it sets up really well um, why we need to be concerned about who God is and what it means that he's come to be with us. Listen to the rest of that paragraph. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the portentous fact of any man is not what he do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We, this is real important. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. 
What Tozer's saying is uh, right embedded there in that central idea that there's a secret law of the soul that draws us to our image of God. What he's saying is the way that we image God, the way that we perceive him will be the way that we are formed as his followers. And so that means the, the way that we conceive, not just the, the breadth of God, the idea of God, but the details of God. What we're looking for when we say God, what, we, what comes into our mind, becomes the image by which we're formed. It becomes the, the structure that kind of shapes our formation. Now, the challenge is that none of us no matter how much training you have, no matter how much study you've done, no matter how much Bible you've memorized, no matter how long you've come to church, none of us has a pure version of the image of God in our heads. We can't help but be shaped by culture, which is part of who we are. And so we're shaped quite literally by all the way back 2,000 years ago by the Greek ideas of who God is, by people like Plato and Aristotle. You've maybe never read them. You don't know anything about them, but your image of God, my image of God is shaped by them. We're shaped by a way of thinking called Gnosticism. Over the course of the last 2,000 years, Gnosticism has come in and out of the church. And without giving you a whole bunch of information about it, your image of God, like it or not, is shaped by it. We in the U.S. are shaped by something called deism. Our uh, early founding fathers, many of them, uh, were classified theologically as deists, those who believed in a God who was powerful but separate and uh, required us to do all kinds of work uh, on his behalf because he wasn't doing it for us. That's part of the way that we're shaped. You can't have grown up in the United States over the last couple decades without being shaped by cultural Christianity. A world where most everyone is Christian by default means that God becomes our happy heavenly grandfather who's doting over us and Jesus becomes our buddy and we walk with him. There's no sense of the holy. There's no sense of the godness of God. It's just kind of what we do. It's what we do on Sunday mornings and then we go on with the rest of our lives. And at this time of year especially, we remember that we're shaped by nostalgia. We're shaped by our past history and the things that make us feel warm and good about God himself. For instance, most of us, me included, have a very difficult time hearing Luke chapter 2 read, the story of Christmas, without hearing it in the voice of Linus and picturing a big empty stage with a spotlight, right, and a little kid with a blanket. Like, we just can't help it. It's it, it, the the the. Charlie Brown version of Christmas is just as much embedded in our psyche as the Jesus version of Christmas is. It's just who we are. Now, I could take a whole bunch of time and uh, point by point, starting with Plato, we could kind of walk through and dismantle each of those. The problem is it would take most of the afternoon and you'd be asleep by the second ism and it really wouldn't work well. So instead, rather than trying to dismantle all of the false versions of God, what I want us to do is take the next half hour or so to stare into the beauty of who God says he is, who Mary saw when she heard that God was coming. And as we stare at his beauty and his transcendence, pray that God would knock off some of those cultural misconceptions. It won't ever happen perfectly, but we want to, as much as we can, pursue after the fullness of God. And I want to do that this morning uh, using maybe the most famous, um, uh, certainly one of the most uh, poignant and uh, even tense poems ever spoken. Um, Mary, 
who, if you uh, trust most theologians, would say would be a young teenage girl, a girl maybe 12, 13, 14, 15, something like that, um, spoke a poem that we call the Magnificat. The Magnificat comes from the first word of the poem that Mary spoke. We call it a song that she spoke in poetry. And as she did, um, she, she spoke truth that forms who she expected God to be. When she heard Emmanuel, this is the L, the God that she saw coming. So I want you to listen to the poem, and then I want us to dig into the heart of what Mary saw. So Lizzie's going to come and read for us from Luke chapter 1, uh, the Magnificat of Mary. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. Thank you, Lizzie. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we seek to center our thoughts, our minds, and our hearts on what is true about you and what that means for us, would you give us grace to see you as you are? Would you help us to push through the preconceptions of the Christmas season, some of the sentimentality and the, the trappings, and help us to get back to the heart of what it means to be your people? And so, God, would you, through your words, speak to us, form us, and shape us. May my words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may your words that come from your spirit remain. May they penetrate our hearts and change us. Like seeds, may they find fertile soil, grow up, and bear fruit. And so, God, would you speak? Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I want to look at Mary's song. Uh, what, what's at a 25,000 foot view, what, what is it? What, what's she saying and why does it matter? And then I want to look at the message of the song. What, what is it about the song that we need to take? And then finally, uh, the reason why if you've grown up evangelical, you probably haven't heard a lot of messages on the Magnificat. And it's because of the tension that's in Mary's song. And so I want to look at those tensions. I want to bring them out and uh, see what that means for our perception of God. So the song, the message, and the tensions. So the first thing you realize as you read through it, particularly if, you have, uh, if you've been a student of the Old Testament and you've understood the scriptures that were Mary's Bible. Remember, Mary's Bible would have been uh, Genesis through Malachi, along with uh, a variety of writings that we call deuterocanonical. They're, uh, they're 
old ancient writings that were part of the Hebrew text, but aren't part of the canon, the, the 66 books that we call the Bible. Um, that, those books, those Old Testament books, plus those other writings, shaped Mary. They, they shaped who she was. And so the first thing you notice is that this is a song that is shaped by the word. If you go through this, it's not just that every verse could be footnoted. Almost every word could be footnoted. Like this is coming out of this. Remember, uh, let's call, call her 13, 13, 14, whatever she was. This is a young teenage girl who's faced with what she could never have expected. And her immediate response is the word of God coming out of her. She's somebody who has been formed by scripture. There's this uh, fascinating book, probably not one that you're going to go buy, but one of the uh, kind of books that pastors love to look at. Um, the, the book is called The Commentary on the New Testament Usage of the Old Testament. It's like a thousand pages long. If you want to borrow it, let me know. I'll let you borrow it quickly. I need it back, but you could borrow So the, the commentary on the New Testament usage of the Old Testament is basically um, from Matthew to Revelation, all of the ways the Old Testament is referenced by the New Testament. And when you get into there uh, and you start to look at Mary's song, it's like two and a half pages of references of all the different things that Mary's referencing. Now, um, there are all kinds of speculation as to like this word is pulled from here and this word seems to be referencing here. But, but I just want to give you a list of the ones that are explicitly referenced, the ones that theologians agree this is clearly what Mary's talking about in these, uh, these short verses that Lizzie read for us, 10 verses or so. Um, the first thing you would notice if you're familiar with the Old Testament story is that there's an allusion to Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's probably the clearest allusion in there. It's the one that uh, most people immediately notice. It comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 2, several different places in her song. Beyond 1 Samuel 2, there are five or six psalms that are distinct, as well as a couple dozen others that are potentially referenced. She references Habakkuk, Deuteronomy, the Deuterocanonical book of 4 Ezra. I know you probably have that one memorized, so you knew that one already, but 4 Ezra. Um, Zephaniah, Exodus, Isaiah, and Micah, at least those. That's the starting point. This is in 10 verses by a 13-year-old girl. She is so formed by the word that it naturally comes out of her. And what's fascinating is it's not a string of quotes. It's not like she quotes this verse here and this verse here and this verse here and she puts it together and makes a poem out of it. It's that she's inspired by, shaped by the word. We can see the allusion to the word, but she's not just rote repeating it. She's been formed by it. She's been shaped by it. She's part of a culture where literally her media is going to the temple, hearing the word read, going home and having conversations around the meal, around the table. As she's doing her chores, she's meditating on the word. As she engages with friends, she's talking about the word. The word has soaked into her. And the first thing we notice about this song is that it comes out of her. It's the lens by which she sees the world. The challenge that we have is that we want to be word-soaked people. We want the lens that we see the world, we want it to be the word. We want to be people, if we're followers of Jesus, we want to be people who see the world through the lens of God's word. But most of us see the world through some other kind of lens, whether that be political or social or personal, um, what matters to me, or it may be through the lens of your vocation or through uh, the lens of a hobby that you have or the friends that you have, the people that you're relationally connected to. 
But for many of us, if we were to be encountering something that was life-changing, our immediate response would be, um, I remember for God to love the world, he gave his only son, and um, then I need a Bible to start to look up some stuff. Like you pull out the app, right, <laughs> to try to find it. Because we're just not soaked in the word. And no matter how much we long to, like you could hear that and be like, I want to be like Mary. I'm going to be soaked in the word. And you could start to study, like you get up early, a couple hours early every day this week and study. I mean, memorize the Bible. And you could come back by next Sunday and you could have a bunch of stuff memorized, but you wouldn't be shaped by the word. That formational process of being formed, it doesn't happen in a day or a week or a month or even a year. It happens over the course of years and years of the steady discipline, the habit of coming back to the scripture. Mary did that. And it became the lens by which she saw the world. This song is shaped quite intentionally through the word. And it's the word then that becomes the message that she has. So the first part of the message you need to see is right at the very beginning. The first thing she says is this, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, why should you say that? We tend to see this in a nostalgic and sentimental 21st century uh, lens that says like, like Mary's probably thinking, aw, I always wanted to be pregnant. Like, this will be so nice. Like, I, I can't even imagine what that's like. And it, and it gets to be the son of God. Like, how wonderful is that? This is going to be a beautiful nine months. I can't wait till we end up at the manger in Bethlehem. It's going to be just wonderful. No, that's not at all what Mary said. What Mary said literally would have been, like, my life is over. Like, e everything's done. Like, my entire network, my entire life, everything I've built over the course of these 13, 14, 15 years, everything's crashed. Like my, my fiance is going to leave because why would he stay? My community is going to excommunicate me. I'm going to be tossed out. My, I, my reputation is going to be destroyed. Like there's nothing good about this. And her response is, my soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Because when we hit the most difficult areas of life, what we need is not to fix our problems. What we need is to have a bigger vision of God. And that's what Mary did. She was saying, my soul magnifies the Lord because, man, God's got a big problem on his hands. He better deal with this. Right? What, he, what she's saying is, like, th this is really, really difficult. And because it's so difficult, I need a really big vision, a full and robust vision of who God is. As the people of God... When we come across difficulty, our natural tendency is to try to fix the difficulties, try to, try to deal with the problem. But Mary shows us the way that says, instead of fixing the problem, I need a bigger vision of God. I need to see God magnified so that my problem gets smaller and he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Calvin Miller in his book, The Christ of Christmas, says it this way. We cannot focus on his greatness and our depression at the same time. If we remain focused on how bad we feel, we will be unable to concentrate on the Savior. But focus on his greatness and you will find it impossible to dwell in your own painful circumstances. Isn't it a beautiful image? What he's saying is if you're staring in to the fullness of God... All of a sudden, the way that you see your own problems is going to start to shift. And that's what Mary did. My soul magnifies the Lord. I know that my life's about to be wrecked, 
but my soul magnifies the Lord. This isn't like pretending. This isn't skipping away and whistling and pretending like everything's good. This is Mary saying, my problem's really, really big, but my God is a lot bigger than my problem. And so my soul magnifies the Lord. And then Mary goes on to say, uh, kind of a reiteration of what we actually just studied in Exodus chapter 6. These promises that God made to Moses, made to the people of Israel, she's reiterating them. The, the promise of deliverance, the, problem, the promise of redemption, the, the promise of covenant love that God would cling to with his people. She's coming back to those promises. And it's like this initial version of the Exodus, the, the story that had been told, now she's recounting it, she's remembering it, and she's reliving that story as she, as she talks through this. It's all of these promises coming together in her head. And so we tend to look at Mary's response as a, a nice response to an angelic message. Like, oh, look, an angel showed up and said some stuff. And Mary was like, oh, be it, be it done to me. as just as you say. My soul magnifies the Lord. But what Mary was really saying was, like, wait, I, I've read all these promises. Like, I've heard these promises talked about. Like, we had had just a little bit of faith that God might do this thing. And now, all of those promises are coming true. All of them. Like, dozens, hundreds of prophecies are bouncing around in her head, and she's saying, like, it's actually happening. Like, God's doing this thing. This isn't, like, this isn't Mary saying, oh, great, God's coming into the world. This is, this is Mary saying, that stuff is true. Like, it's happening now. Like, God's doing it. Like, uh, let me give you an illustration. Please, I'm not trying to build an end times theology around this. I just want you to try to uh, imagine. We, we have said for, for generations, Jesus is coming back. A centerpiece of the Christian faith is the second coming of Christ. What happens if tonight you go home, you lay down in your bed, and Jesus himself, not a vision of Jesus, but Jesus himself shows up at the foot of your bed. And he says, indeed, I'm coming back. And I'm starting now. And all those people on TV with the charts and the graphs, they were wrong. That wasn't a surprise to anybody, right? Um, and he says, instead, there's going to be a process. And I am going to show myself to the entire world, and you're going to be a part of it. I'm going to use you, and it's going to be a difficult process, but in the end, it's going to be really, really beautiful. Again, I'm not saying this is the way it's going to unfold. I'm just saying imagine. Imagine if that's what happened. What would you do? Like, the first thing I would do would be like, okay, I was supposed to go to work tomorrow. Should I or shouldn't I? Like, um, I have a mortgage coming due, but do I keep the money? Do I burn the money? Like, well, I don't even know what I do with the money. I have kids to raise. Do I just leave them to the wolves, or do I, like, actually, like, what do I do? Like, because if... If Jesus is standing in front of me and the second coming that I've prayed for and believed by faith would happen is starting to unfold and I'm a central part of it, now all of a sudden everything's changed. That's what Mary's experiencing. What Mary's experiencing is like the entire world just got flipped upside down and she's right in the middle of the story. All of these hundreds of prophecies, they're, they're all coming together and Mary's saying, oh wow, this is big. This is, this, is, uh, this is unbelievable. The last thing on Mary, Mary's mind is the sentimentality that goes with twinkle lights and presents. Right? It's just not, that, that's not Christmas for Mary. Christmas for Mary has nothing to do with a nice nativity scene in somebody's front yard. 
Christmas for Mary is a life-changing, world-shaking event. It's every, and you see it in her song, right? Where she starts to say things like, like the, the proud are going to be scattered and the humble are going to be exalted and uh, all of the, the mighty are going to be put down in their place and God's going to, like all of this stuff is going to change. Fleming Rutledge was uh, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. Uh, she wrote a variety of different texts out of her sermons. And one of her sermons fr- back from 1982, uh, I, I, I aspire to someday title sermons as well as Fleming Rutledge did. Her, her title is Somewhere Beyond Mindless Fluffland. Is that great? Like I love, I, sooner or later I'm going to preach that sermon. I have a whole different sermon, but I'm just going to title it Somewhere Beyond Mindless Fluffland, just because I like it. I think it'd be really good. But, but her whole idea was pushing back against the sentimentality of the world, of, of Christmas. Like we come at Christmas sentimental. And listen to the way that she says it. No phony innocence here. No sentimental glorification of motherhood, but the announcement of the turning point of world history, the entrance of God himself on the human race. No Pollyannas here, no early arrival at a mock state of innocence. This isn't a nice thing that's happening. This is a world-changing event. That's what she's saying. Like Everything's changing. Let's keep going to the next uh, part of her quote. For us... Sentimentality is preferred to truth. Ooh, that hurts. And the most that we really want to know about Christmas is that a pretty girl had a beautiful baby and a nice light shone around them. None of us wants to mess up the Christmas spirit with thoughts of poverty and war and death. A week or so of mindless fluff land is exactly what the doctor ordered. Let's pretend that this baby in the straw is really our ticket to innocence in no way particularly different than other babies. See, what Rutledge is saying is we we have this way that we want to approach Christmas as we get towards the end of the year and all the pressures build in and all the stuff that happens with family and all the stuff that happens with work and all that's going on in the world. What we want to get to is a week or two of just shifting into neutral, of mindless fluff land, of sentimentality. And nobody wants to be the one to say, hey, guess what? Christmas actually has nothing to do with that. It's actually not about all of those pretty lights and all those presents. It's actually about the world being changed. It's actually about the fact that God himself has come into the world, which is why the the proud are being cast down and the hungry are being fed because God has changed everything. But we tend to dwell in sentimentality instead of reality, and that's the heart of what she's saying to us. So what, what are these tensions? Um, Mary is putting together this, uh, th- this group of tensions. I'm going to pull out four of them. There are more even in her short song, and there are far more within the scriptures. I just want to pull out four that I think are important for us to see. Tensions that Mary is comfortable with. Her version of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament that she knew, And the God who was coming within her and for her, she held together in a way that can be very uncomfortable for us, but very necessary for us to see. Let me try to walk you through them. The first tension is this, the tension of the transcendence along with the imminence of God. Transcendence and imminence. So um, Mary says it this way, he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
This, this version of God who is uh, huge, is, is uh, unbelievably large, is, uh, I'm unable to get my mind around him. He also has come to me. He's come to us as individual people. In the Old Testament with Moses, you see the transcendence of God, uh, the God who shows up at the burning bush that is burning but not consumed. The God in Exodus chapter 20 who comes to Mount Sinai and the, the mountain's on fire and there's thunder and lightning and the people of Israel can't even walk up the mountain or they're going to die. And that, that same God who's all over the mountain, lightning and thunder and, and fire, that same God is going to say, I want you to build a tent Here's the dimensions of the tent. You can come into this part of the tent, but there's going to be this little room in the back of the tent. And then inside that little room, there's going to be another little room. And that's where I'm going to be. Like, how's that work? This massive God who's taking up the whole mountain is now dwelling in this little room in the back of the tent. God is transcendent and yet imminent. Remember Tozer said that the most important thing about us is our image of God. If we err on the side of the transcendent, we see God as big and mighty and powerful, then what we end up with is a God that we're afraid of, a God that we don't want to approach because we don't know if he's going to zap us with lightning or we don't know if, if like, he can't be trusted. He might be angry, and so we don't approach him. But if we err on the side of the imminence of God, now all of a sudden we want to come close to buddy Jesus, and there's no sense of the holy and we become more important in our minds than God himself. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, talks about the way that humility is generated. Listen to the way that he talks about it. Humility is a natural product of reflection about who God is. In the ancient world, relationship with God was not a casual affair, as if God were a friendly neighbor. Rather, it was seen as an honor, and it called for a deep sense of respect, much like a person might respond to hosting a famous dignitary. The transcendence and the eminence come together, and when we hold them both, not erring to one side or the other, what is created in us is a humility that says, this person who's come to be with me is really, really important. I need to take this really, really seriously. Transcendence and eminence held together. Second tension is that God is both all-powerful and yet humble. Mary says it this way, He brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he exalted those of a humble estate. We know intuitively powerful people interact with powerful people. That's the way the world works. Like if, you're gonna, if you're powerful and you want to get something done, you interact with other powerful people. If God is going to come to earth in the first century, he's going to sit down with Caesar because he and Caesar together can get something done. But that's not the way God works. Mary, knowing the Old Testament promises, knowing the truth of who God is, recognized that God was not coming to the powerful, but instead he was coming to the humble. And Jesus himself in his most famous sermon said the same thing. He, he said in Matthew's version, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's version, blessed are the poor. I think Jesus meant both. Uh, what, what, what he's saying is uh, the, the poor or the poor in spirit, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is something that we enter into most easily from a humble estate. He's not saying that rich and powerful people can't enter the kingdom. What he's saying is rich and powerful people will most naturally rely on themselves. And the poor in spirit know that they can't rely on themselves. 
that their resources and their power and their authority in an earthly way don't mean anything in a heavenly perspective, uh, that the power of the earth doesn't translate to the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, they are the closest to the kingdom of heaven. The God who's coming is both all-powerful and humble. Both things are held together. So the first tension, he's transcendent but imminent. Second tension, all-powerful but humble. The third one is that he is incomprehensible and yet knowable. This is the way Mary says it. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That phrase, the Lord, is uh, Mary's, Mary's vision of God, the mysterious God who has a name that can't even be spoken. There, there's a name that has been given to us, handed down from centuries, and all we know it is by its letters. It, can't even, uh, it doesn't even work in our language. My soul magnifies the Lord, the incomprehensible, unknowable Lord. And yet my soul rejoices in God, my Savior, the one who has come to be with me. Again, A.W. Tozer in his book says it this way. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable, arises from the image of God in the nature of man. Deep calleth unto deep. And though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster theologians call the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. How can this be realized? The answer of the Bible is simply through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's saying is there's this part of us that longs to know the God who can't fully be known. But we, we all have it in us, what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, eternity that's placed in our soul. There's a longing that we have. And even though the fall and brokenness and sin, there's something in us that wants to know God. And yet we can't fully know him, but there's a longing towards him. And the only way that we begin to know him is what the Bible says through Jesus. So Colossians chapter one says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The, the, the God that we can't get our head around, Jesus is that God. So if you want to know the God that's incomprehensible, get to know Jesus, and you'll begin to know the characteristics and the heart, the, the, the formation, the, the, the sense of who God is. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, um, one of my very favorite benedictions, because it's so Paul, it doesn't make any sense, and that's part of what makes it so good. Um, Paul, Paul says, I, I'm praying for you, that you would know the love of God that's beyond knowledge. Anybody confused about that? Because that is bizarre, right? Uh, Peter says in one of his letters, that, that Paul, he's really hard to understand. Like, I think that's great because that's, that's one of those things. It's like, I want you to know the love of God that you can't possibly know. Like, why pray that? Like, what are you even talking about? But see, what he's saying is this idea that the love of God is so big, we can't really know. He's incomprehensible, and yet he's knowable, revealed through Jesus. As I get to know Jesus, I know the love of God that I can't fully know, but I begin to know through him. He's incomprehensible and yet knowable. And the final tension I want to unpack this morning is that he is both just and merciful. Full justice and full mercy. This is the way that Mary says it. Uh, this is in verse 49. She says, Holy is his name. That's the end of verse 49, the beginning of verse 50, even though there's a little uh, divide in your text. And his mercy is for those who fear him. Holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. 
Holy is his name is a reminder to us that when God shows up, we are all in trouble, right? That, that should be the immediate reaction. If we understand a holy God, if we understand the perfection of God, we understand the standard of God, we understand that God created us for certain purposes in a certain way, and that we all have not just rebelled by committing sin, but we all have rebelled because we have uh, determined that we want to be the Lord instead of him. So at a motivation level, we have said, I'll be in charge, thank you very much. I, I know that you're the God of the universe and you made me and all, but I'll, I'll take charge of this now. And in that moment, God shows up, his holiness should terrify us. His holiness should make us step back. Mary has to be saying, I can't carry God. I, I'm too broken. I'm too messed up for that, like all of us. And yet, her next line is, and his mercy is for those who fear him. The holy God of the universe has come in justice and in mercy. But again, this goes back to our conception of God. We tend to, in the 21st century, really zero in on one specific characteristic of God. It's, it's in the Bible. It's very biblical. The apostle John said it, very short verse in 1 John, God is love. You probably know that verse. You probably quoted that verse. God, and it, indeed, God is love. But he's love according to his definition of love, not our definition of love. See, our definition of the love of God is the doting grandfather who's just so happy to see us no matter what we're doing, no matter what our life is like. The buddy Jesus who's just with us. He's just hanging. You know, he's, he's there along with us. The love that we perceive, our 21st century version of love, requires neither justice nor mercy. Because it's just love. And Christmas works really well for that. Because the baby in the manger doesn't say much. He cries now and then. But he's not critiquing our life. The baby Jesus isn't coming and saying, like, hey, you really shouldn't be doing that. Um, what's, what's your motivation behind that? The baby Jesus isn't saying any of those things. He's just sitting in the manger, sweet, with a little glow around him. Requiring neither justice nor mercy. But the Jesus of Easter, when we see Jesus on the cross and we hear Jesus going to the cross with blistering words for the religious and words of invitation for the broken, that's an entirely different story. And it's a God who is holding fully together justice and mercy. And it's fascinating because Mary, Mary would have known the sacrificial system. She would have known the promises. She could start to piece it together. But she actually speaks in that simple line, holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him. She speaks the heart of the gospel, even though she couldn't have understood how it would form up. In fact, as she goes into the temple to dedicate baby Jesus, uh, she's going to hear a sword will pierce your heart too. And she doesn't get it. Like she doesn't know what that means. Joseph is going to do the same thing. Zachariah's song, we don't have time to dive into it today, it would say the same thing. The gospel being spoken, justice and mercy held together. But it wasn't until a few decades after the crucifixion of Jesus that the Apostle Paul wrote it in a really clear way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin because the justice of God must be enacted. 
You and I are broken, but we've also had lots of broken things done to us. We live in a broken world. And, and we know this innate sense within us, we know that justice must come. The, the, the wrong things must be paid for. They must be made right. And, and even though we don't want that in us, we'd like to think of ourselves as generally pretty good. We look around at the people around us and we know how bad they are, right? And we want justice for them, at least. God made him who has become sin for us. Why? Because justice must be paid. If God is going to come in full and complete justice, there must be an appropriate payment, a sacrifice. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. Mercy. Righteousness that we don't deserve, righteousness that we cannot earn, is freely given. Mary in her Old Testament-shaped response, is telling us the gospel. That God comes with perfect justice and perfect mercy and invites us into relationship with him. When we come to the communion table at Easter, it makes sense. Because we see a broken, agonizing Jesus on the cross. And we get his body's broken for you. His blood is poured out for you. We get it. But at Christmas, it's a lot trickier because we see the soft skin of a newborn baby who's, in our mind, cooing quietly. You know that a little town of Bethlehem, that wonderful song, it's, it's, it's silent. Uh, it's, 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 it's silent. No, no crying he makes. Yeah, right. He, he cried like everybody else, right? Silent night's so funny. It was silent night for somebody somewhere, but it was like pretty loud for Mary, I'm pretty sure. We see that Jesus, and it's tough for us to get our head around the broken body and the shed blood. But it's in that response of Mary, holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him, that we're invited to come and we're invited to remember that he comes in holiness, in justice, and he comes with mercy for us. And so I want to invite you to come to the table and to respond, to come and remember that this baby isn't just the quiet baby in the manger, but is the world-changing, earth-shaking event of God stepping in. This isn't sentimental. This is, uh, th- this is the most important thing ever. And so for us, our Christmas celebrations shouldn't just be lights and candles and food and presents. That's fine. But it should also be a recognition that God is doing something in the world. And so as we come to the communion table, we come to receive this baby who grew up to die for us. Justice and mercy held together. And we receive him. If you're a follower of Jesus,